we had one more song. I was getting comfortable, but uh, Charles said, no, no, we need to need to get moving along. It's good to see everyone here tonight. Uh, if you are visiting with us, you know, again, as was mentioned, we're happy to have you. Uh, what we're going to do, your homework assignment, though, for next week, you Sunday night crowd, um, you, you've got one or two options. And, and, and again, you can do either one, uh, or if you could do both, if you really want extra credit. Number one, you can either invite two other people or sit in these two pews. Okay, that's your homework assignment. I'm not, you know, we're not making any judgments or anything like that. We're just saying that's your homework assignment. Um, and so trust everyone to do that. Um, picking a topic. I mean, it's tough sometimes anyways, because you've got the entire Bible to work with, and, and so it can be tricky from that standpoint. But picking a topic on Sunday night, to me, has always been tough. And it isn't because, you know, okay, Sunday night's different than Sunday morning. There's, you know, not as many people. The auditorium isn't quite as packed. It isn't because it's kind of evening time and dark or, or anything, you know, along that. It isn't become sort of, isn't because our demographics are different. To me, Sunday nights are tough because somewhere between Sunday morning, after lunch and after errands, until the time that we show up on Sunday night, we sort of transition. And at that point in time, Sunday really stops being the end of the weekend and the beginning of the week. And we start thinking about all the things that are going to happen tomorrow. All the things that we have got to get done today before Monday morning starts. All the homework that needs to be started and finished. All the, all the meetings that we're going to have. All the emails. And, and, and so we, we start this transition. And because of that, we sort of have one foot into Monday and one foot still in Sunday. So it's tough sometimes. So I'm going to go with sort of a tried and true and a topic for which I have both passion and experience. And we're going to talk about food, more or less. Because a couple of odd things happened to me this week regarding food. And I, you know, I got a kick out of them, you know, each time. Uh, earlier in the week, I was, you know, in the metropolis of Sundown, Texas, about to have lunch at the one place that we could find, and it was just a very small, and to call it a trailer would have been benevolent. I mean, it was a very, very small, and it had, you know, some picnic tables, and the weather was, it was cool, but it was nice. And as I, I got up to order, there were three things on the menu. I could get a plate, I could get a sandwich, or I could get a burger. And then there were assorted cans of beverages there. Well, that wasn't good enough for me, you know, so I began to inquire. Well, okay, the burger, she just kind of looked at me. Okay, I understand what a burger is. The sandwich, well, that day it was ham and cheese. The day before it was turkey. The next day maybe it's a BLT, but there was one type of sandwich. And there was going to be one type of plate. And she started describing it, and I'm sort of asking, you know, well, okay, do I have to tell me about my sides and, and everything like that? And finally, in a very patient but also sort of annoyed tone, she just looked at me and she says, are you going to have a conversation with it or are you going to eat it? And I said, okay. And she just handed, and it was good. It was ribs and sausage and everything like that. But it, I was focused on the conversation. What was it? But the one that really just got me was later on in the week, because uh, I have kind of, you know, very strict rules about, 
um, you know, kind of my dining by myself. It always involves a crossword puzzle, and, and that way, you know, I don't have to make eye contact with anybody in the evening or anything like that. And so, it, it, and usually it works out just right that sometime right about the time that I'm done eating, I usually will finish up the crossword puzzle. And this time I thought, I wouldn't mind seeing what they've got for dessert. I had just a little room left. And it's one of those places where they bring, you know, when you ask them, they bring that little dessert tray by. You know what I'm talking about. And they just kind of, ooh, and just kind of, you know, begin to mesmerize you. And so I'm watching it at this table kind of adjacent to me. And there was a family, and there was a couple of kids, and the kids are just kind of, ooh, you know, kind of doing that thing. And I don't know which, what it was, the pie a la mode or something like that, but gee, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but a lot of that food's fake. I mean, especially the ice cream. And apparently in this restaurant, they make it out of some combination of lard and butter and, and whatnot, because that's why it doesn't melt or anything like that. And before they could say anything, that little kid ran his finger through it, put it in his mouth, chewed, swallowed, and then it got fun. And it, we almost had chicken nuggets or chicken strips coming the other way. I mean, it was just in, in the sound that he made. I mean, it was the first time I just, uh, no, I mean, I just really wasn't in the mood for dessert after that. But, but I want you to understand this concept of taste. You know, we understand that there are five senses that we have. You know, we understand the sense of sight. We understand the sense of sound and the ability to hear. We understand the sense of touch. We understand the sense of smell. And then rounding it out is the fifth one, the sense of taste. Now, if you happen to be a mother, there's a sixth one. And it's kind of that creepy, weird ESP radar thing that goes on. I don't know how to describe it or anything like that, but they just seem to know. Uh, and it's, I don't know if it's a combination of that or some connection with the cosmos. I don't know. But moms, especially moms of anything teenage and under, have, you know, that sixth sense. They, they, it's, it's all-knowingness. And so, but anyways, but taste to me is phenomenal. Taste to me is very interesting. And I don't know, you know, if we were, if we were to rank the senses, we would probably put taste down there below, you know, kind of toward the bottom. You know, that if we had to get on with life, and if we had to live life without one of those five senses, we would probably get rid of taste. I mean, if for no other reason, because you never go into the DMV and you never do a taste test. They'll ask you about your hearing and they'll make, can you see and, and everything like that. But, you know, you know, we, so I, we can kind of get by without taste. But even despite that, one of the things that I find, you know, so interesting is that it's it's just really interesting. Because it differs from all the other senses in that it's the one. It kind of will smell a little bit, but not as much. But it's the one sense where you actually sort of ingest the experience. You know, I'm just looking at something and then I'll see an image. And the image will come into my brain, but that's as far as it goes. Now, I mean, I might choose to do things and everything like that, but that's really as far as it, it, that's its impact into my system is a sight. I can hear something. And again, that comes into the ears and into the brain, and, and that's kind of where it sits and kind of rattles around. I can touch something. And even though it, maybe it's hot, maybe it's cold or everything like that, it's still outside of my body. But when I taste something, now I'm ingesting just a little bit. It's actually inside me. And in some minute amount, it's sort of jumbling around in my system. 
And if you think of all the things that, that we do sometimes, and you just think of all the decisions that we've ever made, and, and to me it's what's fascinating is sort of the unconscious, the subconscious effect, the involuntary effect sometimes that taste has on us. I mean, I appreciate and I respect the sight and the smell and the sound and, and everything like that, but I have never once kicked back on a Thanksgiving day having overseen anything. You know, but, but we know how it is. You get a bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that, and then you get into something that's just really, really good. And then before you know it, you're back and forth. We know how that is. I mean, do it any Sunday morning. I mean, every now and then there's one of those dishes. You know, wherever, and you know what, and it's, you know, where people are elbowing each other. It was really, really good. We got to go back for more. It's involuntary. Because there's something about taste that when it gets in our system, we can do some silly things, but it just, it's almost subconscious. And I think that's why, to me, it's fascinating that if we look in the Bible, and we will tonight, you know, there's some three dozen or so references to taste in the Bible. Three dozen specific references, not just sort of benign references or just sort of obscure references, but where the Bible uses this concept of taste to try to get a point across, to try to teach something. And we're going to look at those tonight. And there's, because there's really four. And it's the fourth one that we're going to talk about the most, but I want you to see just sort of the totality of how the Bible uses the word taste. The first reference is just simply a reference to eating. You know, that, that's all it is. Whether the food's good, whether the food's bad, whether there's a lot of it or a little of it or anything like that, that sometimes the Bible will talk about to taste something, and its specific reference is, is just around eating, just something very simple. You know, in Jonah chapter 3, verse 7, one of the commandments that was given out into the city was, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. And that was just their way of talking in terms of you can't eat. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 24. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. And in passages like that, even in the New Testament, Acts chapter 23, verse 14, the chief priests, the elders, the ones that could not stand the message of God going out to his people, they said they would do nothing, they would taste nothing until Paul is killed. And that's how they described it. And so the first time, you know, and, and there's several other passages like that where, the, where God's word tells us, and instead of saying, well, in, in, instead of eating or abstaining or fasting or anything like that, they didn't taste anything. Nothing went into their mouth. The second form of taste or the use of taste has to do with what we would understand or we would think about a little bit more, just the idea of flavor, just kind of that flavor. And understand there's a difference between tasting and, and flavor. Those are completely, they're, they're subtle, they're, they're connected. But the Bible uses the word taste at times to describe what we would understand to be flavor and the quality of that flavor what something tastes like, and not just sort of the sense of a taste, but just some, some reference to if it's good, if it's bad. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 31, or Numbers chapter 11, verse 18, or 8, it talked about manna, being from God, and would liken it to coriander seeds and things like that, but it, it tasted, the Bible said. 
like wafers and sweet honey. The taste, the quality of the flavor was that. Matthew chapter 5, it's one that begins a little bit more familiar in Luke chapter 14. When Jesus is talking to the people and he talks about salt and saltiness. And that salt is defined by the flavor, the taste of salt. And if it doesn't have that, it's really not good for anything. But it draws on this idea within the word taste of flavor. The Bible uses it to teach certain things. Kind of unrelated in that sense. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 17, we get the wisdom about how bread obtained by falsehood tastes sweet. The warning being that there is falsehood, there is deception, there is ill-gotten gain and everything, and it will taste sweet. And the only way that, that, the, that the writer can describe it to us, to mortals, the only way that he can sort of get it across is to understand that there are things that are bad for us that will taste oh so good. And that's the point they were trying to make. John chapter 2, verse 9, the head waiter. It wasn't just enough that the Bible says that there was the miracle about how God, or Jesus turned water into wine at that marriage, at the, at the wedding. But the Bible goes on to understand and uses this, this term taste as the flavor to describe the wine, that the head waiter tasted it. It wasn't just some weird kind of concoction that went from water to wine. It wasn't anything like the head waiter himself validated the miracle through a term that we associate with flavor. Job, he had a great question, I thought. There was a good question in the book of Job. Job 6, verse 6, can something tasteless be eaten without salt? Ah, that's kind of interesting. goes on to ask, is there taste in the white of an egg? I don't know. I've Never had the guts or the need or just kind of the foolishness, I guess, to order an egg white omelet. Some of you have, and you probably got spinach or something on the inside of it for some crazy reason. I don't know what it tastes like. I don't know what it's like even to taste any part of the egg without salt. But this idea of flavor the Bible uses. And then there's a third. And and so these are kind of the more, you know, you want to talk about it kind of the, again, you know, true to the senses type use of the word taste. But then there's times when the Bible really steps it up. And the Bible recognizes, and God recognizes that, again, he's talking to mortals. He's talking to people who only have five senses. We only have, and whatever data comes to us through those five senses, that's all we've got. But this is a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present in everything like that, the ability to see and to, and to absorb and to watch in a way that we can't possibly grasp. And so there are times in the Bible, as God teaches, as God's prophets teach, as God's Son will teach, that the only way he can get across certain things is if he uses terms that we understand. And in the third bucket, there's this category of of what I'm going to call experience. Total experience. Or what the Bible is going to describe is what a word that we might have started with experience. To experience something. But what the Bible wants to convey is it's more than just sort of being around when it happens. 
It's more than just seeing it happen. It's more than just listening to it happen. And the only way the Bible can get it across is to understand just the taste of it. That there's something there. Even though maybe there isn't a physical taste associated with it, it's the only way that God can get across to us this idea of experiencing. Jesus was very specific. In Matthew chapter 16, and Mark chapter 9, and Luke chapter 9 as well. And and Jesus was trying to explain something. And he was trying to get them to understand that the power of his kingdom... The establishment of the church was about to happen. And what he said is, you will not taste death until you've seen the power of my kingdom come. He said, there are some around you that will not. Now, he could have said a whole bunch of different things. He could have said, you're not going to die. He could have said anything like that that we would probably use. But instead, what Jesus said was, they won't taste They won't experience. Their senses will not be flooded with this concept of death until first they have seen my kingdom and the power established here on earth. The establishment of my church, my body, the perfection of that. And the only way that he could get that across is you won't taste of death. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. The Hebrew writer draws on that that same concept. Again, talking about death, the experiencing of death. And he's not talking about seeing a funeral. He's not talking about hearing of a death. He's not talking about anything like that. In Hebrews chapter 2, in fact, you might want to turn there. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Turn there, flip there, Google that, whatever it is we do. Um, In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, he says, But we see him, talking about Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Okay, he's talking about Jesus here. He says, so we see this Jesus. And he's the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, again, there are so many different ways that that could have been written. We might have used the word experience. We might have used go through or, or something like that. But what the Hebrew writer wanted us to understand was this idea of experiencing something on a far deeper level. And, you know, on a level that involves ingesting almost, that kind of a thing. And it's this where you begin to understand there's a big difference between looking at a menu There's a difference between reading the words. There's a difference between listening to someone tell you what the special is and actually tasting it. And you know what I'm talking about. I mean, all of us have eaten something that didn't look too good, haven't we? And we found out we liked it. And we've also eaten something that looked like it would be really good and, and it wasn't so great. I mean, that usually happens at other churches and the fellowships and the potlucks. It's never happened here at Northside. But every now and then, you know, you just, you know, you got that one aunt, you know, that, you know, doesn't have a whole lot, you know, then forgot to go to the store and we got some weird combination of broccoli, kidney beans, you know, and an old kumquat or something like that. And, you know, with noodles, uh, there was a casserole. And it kind of looked like it was good until we tried to taste it. 
it's different when we talk about tasting. I mean, how, how many of you, I, I, I mean, I'm, this is the, the demographics, you know, and everything like that. It's a little bit different. Every one of you, I know, at one point in time have tried to have that conversation. You have tried to logic with someone far younger than you in a high chair far bigger than yours. If you try it, what do we say? You'll like it. You know, as we dangle this bottle of green peas smushed and, and everything else, try it. You know, we, we're not appealing to any of their senses, and so what do we, we go with reason. The hope being if they will just taste it. And, and, but here's this passage. Because the writer is trying to get us to understand something deeper than anything that we can see, anything that we can hear, even anything that we can touch or smell. And the only way is to that Jesus so totally experienced death on our behalf that the only way that we can understand it is to describe it, Jesus tasted of death. And so he says that he might taste death so that we don't have to. Yeah, we may talk about it, and we may hear about it, but we don't have to in any way, shape, or form ingest it into our system because he did that for us. And so that third way is just to the idea of experience. You know, there's the idea of the, you look at the parable of the dinner in Luke chapter 14, you know, where Jesus talked about, hey, there was this man, he was going to have this really nice dinner. Nobody came. He sent his servants out, go get anybody, try to get them to come back. And then, and finally he gets to, you know, the end of that story. And the point he's trying to make is despite the beseeching and besides, you know, beside the fact that this was a wonderful feast, he says, I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Now, the point that he wasn't making was people are going to go hungry. That's not what he was trying to make. The point that he was trying to make is, hey, this roast was really, really good, and you guys didn't get any of it. The point that he was trying to make is they will not experience the everlasting life that the Son of Man has to offer. They were invited and they didn't come. And the only way that he can describe that isn't sort of they missed a good meal or it would have been nice or it would have been fun. The only way that he can try to get that concept across is they will not taste of my dinner. They will not be able to ingest. They will not be able to enjoy. They will not be able to experience. They will not be able to have involuntary senses just excited in the very presence because they weren't there. Finally, watch here. Make sure we end on time. The fourth one. The fourth one's the interesting one. Because, again, it's where sort of our limitations on the English language, just language in general, and, and God's complete sovereignty and his use of language and his use of things like that to be able to convey something with us. That's where we have this sort of neat little intersection. Because in the fourth area, he doesn't talk about you know, eating necessarily. He's not talking about flavor. He's not even talking about experience. This fourth little bucket is very, very unique. It's bigger than just our perception of flavor. It's deeper than the process of digestion or anything like that. It's transformation. This idea of transformation. And the only way to get us to understand that, the only way to sort of connect to it is to use the word taste. And it's very, very profound in its use. 
If you turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Peter's going to talk about changes in their behavior, changes in their attitude, changes in in how they do things, you know, just a, a change to them. And he says, therefore, put aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy and all slander. Okay, that seems pretty good. This isn't the first time that any of God's ordained writers have talked about, you know, stop doing these things. He goes on to say, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Then when you get to verse 3, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. He describes a scenario of, of putting aside all this ugliness and growing in Christ instead. He describes, you know, that you may understand these things, you know, with respect to salvation. He describes this, this maturing and everything like they have. And he says, and this needs to happen if you have truly tasted the kindness of the Lord. And the point that he's trying to make here is just simply hearing about the kindness of the Lord isn't good enough. Simply just seeing the kindness, simply touching it. Maybe even smelling the aroma. He says all of those things isn't going to, you've got to taste the kindness of the Lord. Because when you taste the kindness of the Lord, when you taste any aspect of the Lord, again, this is their way of describing to mortal people something. You, you are ingesting it. It's in your system. It's not just something that is on the outside that you feel or smell or touch or anything. This is something that's now inside. It is coursing through your system. And when you've got that, it's a whole lot easier to deal with things like deceit and malice and slander. It makes a whole lot more sense to you to pursue growth in salvation. In John chapter 8, verse 52, he says, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Again, so many things that he could have said. So many ways that he could have described that. He could have said, keep my commandment, you won't go to hell. Keep my commandment, you'll go to heaven. Instead, he says, keep my commandments, and you won't even taste. There won't be even just the hint of death. Now, all of us, at one point or time, can tell a horror story about something we ate that we seem to taste for the next week and a half. You know exactly what I'm talking about, where it just, we bit into something and, you know, I mean, it was just, and that's exactly what that sounds like. And it's just, it was with us the rest of the morning. It was, you know, and you just, there wasn't enough gum, there wasn't enough toothpaste, there wasn't enough mouthwash or anything like that, because, and it was just, and we just couldn't get the taste out of our mouth. I don't know what death tastes like. I mean, I have eaten some things that I could have sworn, you know, had a tablespoon of death or so in it in the recipe. But I don't know what death tastes like. But I imagine that's not something that comes off the tongue very easily. And what Jesus says, there won't even be the taste of it. And keep in mind, when we talk about taste, I mean, we, we could spend a lot of time, you know, talking about taste buds and just how sensitive they are. And just how little flavor it actually tastes, it sort of triggers a, re- a response, you know, between the taste buds in your mouth all the way up to your brain. It really does not take mu- taste much. 
And so for Jesus to say you won't even taste it is to say there will be no experience with death. Psalms chapter, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 6. Turn it there if you will. And in Hebrews chapter 6, again, he's going to talk about transforming. And he's going to lay out, and it's kind of a tough thing to say, or it's a tough thing to look at. He says, for in the case, talking in verse 4 through 6, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so it starts with, for those that have truly become Christian, have tasted it. He goes on to say, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Okay, so not only have they you know, tasted of the heavenly gifts, partakers of everything, they've tasted good word of God, they've tasted the powers of the age to come. I don't know what else there is to taste when you talk about your spiritual life. You know, to taste you know, all that is good now and all that is good to come. And he goes on to say, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance, since they again crucified of themselves the Son of God and have put him to open shame. Now, what he's not talking about here is, okay, well, once you mess up, there's nothing that the, that's not what he's talking about here at all. But what he's saying is, once you've got the blood of Christ, and once somebody has tasted, truly tasted, and again, that's part of the condition here. Not just heard about, not just saw, not just potentially felt or anything, but they have tasted the heavenly blessings of God. They have tasted, to the extent that we can on this side of eternity, they have tasted the heavenly things to come. They have truly tasted all that is good and holy about the Lord. The question of the Hebrew writers: what else can we do if they choose to fall away? And again, he's describing this as when they've been transformed and they choose to walk away, what can we do? But then the whole idea here is this idea of tasting. Tasting the goodness of the Lord. Tasting the heavenly gift. Tasting the powers and all that is to come. But I think my favorite, and I'm sure I've shared this, is in Psalms chapter 34, verse 8. And we'll kind of close on that verse tonight. But to go to Psalms chapter 34, verse 8, we could go straight to it, but the thing you've got to remember when we're in Psalms chapter 34, it makes it relevant not just sort of for a, for a sermon on taste or taste buds or food or anything like that, but for a sermon for people that have one foot on Sunday and one foot on Monday that are closing out the weekend and starting the week and understand everything that life is going to hit them with, chapter 34 of Psalms is a great one to go to. Because in Psalms chapter 34, we find our hero, David, being pursued. He's got Philistines that hate him. He's got Saul that hates him. He is faked throwing up and looking mad and everything like that. And he is holed up in a cave alone. He doesn't have his armies. He doesn't have any of that going on. And quite literally, everybody looking for him hates him. Everybody looking for him wants to kill him. Now, I realize that when you get up tomorrow morning, you are going to face some people that don't like you. You're going to face some people that you're pretty sure may want to kill you. I don't know. I certainly look at you that way. You're going to face some situations where you're going to feel alone. 
you're going to face some situations where you feel that the armies against you are bigger than the armies that are for you. But you're not going to have anything like Paul or Saul did, excuse me, David. You're not going to have entire nations wanting to kill you. You're not going to have the very king himself wanting to kill you. But yet in the middle of that, I mean, he starts, you know, the, you know, I'll praise the Lord at all times. I will extol his name every chance I get. That's how he starts it. But he gets down to verse 8. And again, as he's holed up in this cave with everything around him wanting to kill him, he simply says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So with everything going as wrong as it possibly could, with a violence just literally right there, just outside of the entrance to the cave, with every reason to sit and to complain and to avoid and everything like that. Notice he says in the second part of that, he doesn't talk about the refuge of the cave. He doesn't talk about the protection of the rock. He says, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Why, David, do you get to say that? David says, because while I was sitting here, I had the option to think about a whole lot of things. I had the option to replay a lot of things in my mind, and the only thing I could do was taste the goodness of the Lord. But David, what about, yeah, 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 but I chose to taste. But David, peek out of the window of of the cave, peek out of the opening, what do you, no, yeah, I, I could see that. I could see my enemies. I could hear their chants. I could smell their campfire. I have felt the whiz of their arrows and their spears. But instead, I'm going to sit here in the cave and I'm going to taste the goodness of the Lord. And in that dark cave, alone and friendless, he chose to focus his mind on truly ingesting the goodness of God. And so that's my hope, my recommendation. That's my sermon, I guess. That's my, you know, that's what I'd like for all of us to do. That's something that I should probably do better myself. Because I get hung up on the things that I can see and the things that I can touch and the things that I can hear and, and everything like that. Taste and see. And what that involves is, is going at things completely different than you used to. Don't just see it or hear it. I mean, let's just think about it today. You've had the opportunity to worship with God or worship God and worship with the saints today, this morning, this evening. You have, well, in, in the morning you heard a better sermon than you did this evening. But okay, so you heard, you heard the word of God. You got to see other people. You got to feel a hug or a handshake. Might even got to smell a few people. I don't know. Well, that's kind of where they, I got to, you know, the example kind of falls on me a little bit, but you know where that like. I mean, think about it, especially if you haven't been here in a while. Is there any better smell than the smell of that foyer? 
I'm with the family of God. Northside's got a smell to it. It's not the people, it's just something about it. But you've had an, the opportunity today to see, to hear. But did you really taste? Or did you kind of put up a little bit of a wall and just left it to those other four senses? Did you ingest the goodness and the greatness of God? Not because of anything that we've done, but because of what he's done. You've got the opportunity to think about fellowship differently. Not just to see it for the interaction of people and and hearing things and saying things and speaking things and feeling things, but to actually use fellowship as the opportunity to ingest the goodness of God, to taste and see that the Lord is so good. It's interesting. I mean, it's every now and then uh, we will go to someone's house. And I can think of a couple of recipes in particular, but in, in, we will eat that at someone's house. And, you know, all the way home, I mean, we're just, oh, that was so good. Oh, that was so good. Ooh, get the recipe. And then our needle make the recipe. And then we all kind of sit there and we eat it. And, of course, well, it wasn't as good as hers. And we're like, well, you know, the boys and I are kind of like, well, I don't know. There's nothing left, but okay. And usually because... At the end of the day, you just can't put in a bottle. You just can't put in a marinade. You can't put into a rub. Hospitality, can you? The graciousness of that. Even food tastes better. It wasn't about the roast or whatever that is. It was about tasting and seeing just how good the Lord is. So tonight, I want to ask you, Are you really tasting the goodness of God? Have you really ingested all that is flavorful, all that is beautiful and wonderful about the goodness and the graciousness of God? And if you haven't, I'm going to invite you. I'm going to beg you to do that tonight. But if you can't do that because of sin unresolved, unrepented, or otherwise, or any other changes or anything else, we want you to not leave here without having tasted the goodness and the graciousness of God. Won't you come while we stand and sing?